When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. And now, a ghost story from BBC radio drama, The Mistletoe Bride, by Kate Moss. Hope you enjoy it. When I was young, my parents had a book, Folklore, Myths and Legends of Britain. It had a black cloth cover and a gold-embossed image of a Viking with beard and horned helmet on the front. Inside, a cornucopia of stories that had endured for 2,000 years. It was in these pages that I first came across the classic English folktale, The Mistletoe Bride. Grisly, oddly compelling, it's the sort of tale that sticks in the imagination. Several of the pieces I've written were inspired by the memory of those long, happy teenage days of reading back in the 1970s. Among them, two versions of the story of the bride who disappeared on her wedding day, This is the first of them. The Mistletoe Bride, Bramshill House, Hampshire, October 1935. I hear someone coming. Have they caught the echo of my footsteps on these floorboards? It is possible it has happened before. I pause and listen, but now I no longer hear anything. I sigh, as always, hope is snatched away before it can take root. Even now, after so long, I cannot account for the fact that no one ever ventures into this part of the house. I do not understand how I am still waiting, waiting after all these years. Sometimes I see them moving around below, sense their presence. Bramshill House has been home to many families in my time, and though the clothes and the styles and the customs are different, it seems to me that each generation is much the same. I remember them all, their faces alive with the legends of the house and the belief that it is haunted. Men and women and children listening to the stories. The story of a game of hide-and-seek... I pray that this will be the day, the end of my story, that this time someone at last will find me. But the halls and the corridors beneath me are silent again. No one is coming. And so then, as always, I am carried back to that first Christmas so very long ago. It is my wedding day. I should be happy, and I am. I am, yet I confess I am anxious, too. My father's friends are lawless, their cups clashing against one another and goose fat glistening on their cheeks, their voices raised. There has been so much wine drunk that they are no longer themselves. Their wild good cheer echoes around the old oak hall so loud that I can no longer hear the lute or viol set for our entertainment. There is mistletoe and holly, white berries and red. The scent of lilies, a lily of the valley, though I do not understand how such blooms survive in the cold of this December. 
The servants have gone back and forth with flagons and plates and dishes. No one lacks for anything. We have sung and listened to antique ballads of love and loss and battle. And we have danced and danced until my feet are sore and my slippers worn through. Lovell, <laughs> I must learn to call him husband, leads me in the cotillion. His fairy bride, he says, lighter than air, barely there at all. And I can see this pleases him. The hours pass. The feast continues late into the afternoon, as was the custom then. Things are different now. Outside, it has grown dark. I look to my husband and I see that, like me, he is weary of the traditions of the feast. All at once... I understand what I might do. My lords, shall we have a game, I say, a game of hide-and-seek for all those who yet have strength in their legs? The atmosphere changes. It bristles and sharpens, becomes eager. The young men think of what mischief might be hidden in the shadows. The young women dream of who might come to find them. My husband laughs. We shall, he says, clapping his hands, though only if my beautiful wife will honour me with a kiss beneath the mistletoe before the game begins. I feel no aversion to the thought of his lips upon mine, though I would rather it not be a sport to be observed by the assembled company, but I oblige and I smile, <laughs> tilt my face to his, a servant holds a bow over our heads. The bargain is struck. Now let our play begin, I say. For this moment I am la fille coquette, charming and gay. I can see Lovell's eyes upon me and know he means to be the one who discovers my hiding place. He claps his hands again and all fall silent. The ladies shall hide first, the gentlemen shall seek. We will give you to the count of... But I do not hear what he says, because we are already running from the hall, laughing and glancing back over our shoulders. Silken brocade, our pretty gowns, painting with colour the long corridors and cavernous spaces of this fine house. I hear the chorus of men's voices counting. Twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven... I take the main staircase. I do not yet know Bramshill House well. There are sixty rooms or more, and I do not want to lose my way. Forty-seven, forty-eight, forty-nine. We are scattering in all directions in our game of hide-and-seek. I take the next flight of stairs up to the second floor, where the smaller bedrooms are to be found along the upper gallery and into a bare room, clearly little used, with a fleur-de-lis wallpaper. Perhaps I have brought the perfume of the lilies with me, but I fancy there is a scent of them in this room, too. Ninety-nine and one hundred! Oh, I hesitate. Then step inside the room. There is no furniture save a substantial old oak chest set below the window. It is deep and long, the length of a man, and bound fast by four wide metal bands. I wonder, did it once hold the trousseau of another bride brought to marriage at Bramshill House? Or do its proportions suggest it was fashioned for a lord of the manor for a voyage? 
I unbuckle the ornate fastening and lift the lid, thinking that it might serve as my hiding place. And indeed, the chest is empty, save for a bolt of pale blue cotton which lines the bottom like a cradle blanket. I hesitate again, then lift my bridal gown and climb up and into the chest, arranging my skirts around me. I fold my veil to serve as a pillow and then lie back. I realise the chest is visible from the corridor, even in the weak light from the candles, and I do not want my hiding place to be too immediately evident. I hesitate for a third time, then I reach up and lower the lid shut. I hear the sigh of the wood as it drops firm back into place. The clasp is loose and argues, rattles. It is confined within the chest, but I feel safe within the dark and I'm grateful for the solitude. The air will soon become stale, so I push at the lid. Oh, it does not give. I experience a passing spark of concern that I cannot move it, but I am warm and comfortable and I do not think I will come to harm. Then I hear the sound of the door to the room banging shut, blown by a gust of wind. Even then, I do not worry. I can hear noises from below, and I'm sure someone soon will come. My husband soon will come. I close my eyes and wait for Lovell. I did not mean to sleep. My head fills with strange dreams, following one hard on the heels of the next. A kaleidoscope of bright colours becoming darker. Candles blown out, one by one by one. Oh, my sleep grows deeper. Memories of the springs and summers and autumns of childhood. A winter wedding. The white of the mistletoe bough and the green of the holly. Lovell does not find me. The food on the marriage table grows cold, congeals. They are looking and calling out my name. It is no longer a game. Impatience turns to fear. They hunt all that night and the next day. They venture to the highest reaches of the house, but if someone did step into the room with the fleur de lis wallpaper, they came no further. If they saw the chest, they saw it was locked fast from the outside and withdrew. By then I could no longer hear them. I felt no pain or fear at the moment of my passing, just a simple slipping away. I died as I had lived, quietly, gently, leaving little trace. But I discovered I could still see things in the house and beyond its boundaries. I could hear the echo of things and sense the shifting of the world, even though I was no longer part of it. They drained the pond and scoured every square of the three hundred acres, extending the search beyond the gates to the villages. They dragged the rivers, running high and fast at that time of year, the black water and the white water and the heart. Still, they did not find me. The weeks turned to months, the months to years. Lovell lost hope. He took to wandering the roads and the pathways through the woods, crying my name, and I wept to see him so broken. Inside my oak tomb, my body grew thin and, in time, faded quite away. All that was left was bones. Lovell grew old. The children sang rhymes about him and pitied him, though they feared him too. 
When he died, he was buried in the grounds of Bramshill House where we had hoped to make our home. And although I never had the chance to know him in life, my longing to lie beside him in death grew stronger, sharper with each year that passed. One century gave way to the next. From time to time, visitors sensed my company. Stories of a white winter lady glimpsed in the upper floors each winter, the wedding guests of years ago searching for the mistletoe bride. Yet, though the house was known to be haunted, still no one came to carry me home. When next I wake, it is autumn again. Bramsill House has been sold. Since 1699 there have been copes here. Now the last of the family has relinquished possession of the estate. Soon a new owner will come and another story will begin. The echo of my heart starts to beat faster. They are making a final sweep of the house, moving from room to room. I can hear someone outside my door. Men's voices asking for instructions. I catch the memory of my breath. The door to the room is opening. I hear its judder as the wood sticks on the floor, then releases and swings back. Footsteps crossing the bare boards, hands resting on the old oak chest. It is too heavy for one man to move. He grunts with the effort, then calls for assistance. Another comes. I feel the lurch and heave as the chest is picked up. Like a ship at sea, it rocks to and fro as they try to find purchase, but they cannot hold it. A curse, a shout, fingers slipping. I am falling. One end goes down and I am thrown sideways. The chest hits the floor. The clasp breaks and the lid cracks open. At last. A moment of silence then. One of the men starts to scream, gibbering about bones and a bridal gown and death. But I am smiling. Now I can smell lilies of the valley once more. I feel the sweet reminiscence of happiness. And I remember what it was to laugh and to love and to hope. The echo of my smile grows broader as I think of my husband and how soon, after so very long, we shall be reunited. Lovell and his mistletoe bride. Bryony Hannah was reading The Mistletoe Bride by Kate Moss. It was directed by Celia DeWolf and was a peer production for BBC Radio 4 Extra. 